In this conversation, recorded just as we went into the Christmas break, John Greenwood and I take a look back at 2022, a year which I think many would agree was generally a bit miserable in keeping with the general trend of the 2020s, but which did contain a number of interesting developments in pensions and financial services. We then took a look ahead to 2023 to see what fun stuff is coming down the tracks at us this year. I hope you enjoy it. John Greenwood, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, editor of Corporate Advisor is probably the biggest hat you wear these days, but you're also a publisher and yeah. have a long and glittering career in pensions journalism. Yeah, good to say that. I've been doing it. I first got the patch in uh, money marketing in 2002. I think I got the pensions patch 2002, 2003. So coming up for my 20-year anniversary of just focusing on pensions. Yeah. Nice. In that vein, then, let's do... It's kind of traditional at this point of the year, isn't it? Your newspaper or a podcast or whatever. Just do, let's, do, let's do a recap of 2022 and a look ahead to 2023. And since you are the pensions expert journalist, and you've won a few awards for that, haven't you? You've been, you've been kind of well decorated for your work over the years. Yeah, I've had quite a few. Very kindly been uh, uh, acknowledged by my peers. So that's, yeah, it's very satisfying to get those, yeah. So I'm just going to throw stuff at you and we'll see what we get to. Sure. You just interrupt me and take over at any point, right? So the one that's kind of interested me was actually technically a 2021 development, but it kind of felt like it was 2022 because it just kind of strayed into it. And I think it will be a recurring issue for pensions is the normal minimum pension age stuff, where the, which the Treasury helpfully went ahead with, even though everybody was telling them it was going to be a real pain in the ass. But that was, that was technically it was the end of 2021, but... I think the consequences spilled into 2022 and just makes life difficult for everybody when it comes to things like transfers and so on. So that was probably set the tone for the year in terms of the kind of issues and developments we were going to deal with. But I guess kind of probably bigger and more substantive stuff that's been going on through this year has been dashboards and kind of related to that was the work that's been quietly going on in the background with Andy Cheseldine and his team on the small pot stuff. So I guess my question to you is, what, what are your thoughts around the pension dashboards and will it work and will it lead to open finance? And then how's it going to intersect with all the small pot stuff going on? So there's quite a lot there I've just thrown at you. What are your yeah, yeah, there's a lot there. And sort of with probably more of a focus on the dashboards and the small pot stuff, it feels like we may well be on the cusp of a big bang. It feels like it. I mean, if you think of like what happened with Direct Line and Direct Line mortgages, actually, I don't know if you remember that back in the 90s, the phone coming over on the TV adverts, and then suddenly everybody's doing their own, switching their own mortgage. And then obviously some people still use an advisor. But you look at the Australian situation where, what is it, every third advert on the telly is a come and switch your super to us. We do quite a lot of research on the performance of pension schemes. And so we've got sort of industry-wide, all of the providers on a, on a document. We're getting requests from, uh, and people have to request the data that, to, to get it, but we're getting requests from a lot of people who I wouldn't have sort of thought of, like little tech providers. So I can definitely sense the canary in the mind of, a, of sort of tech providers gearing up, you know, little startups that we've never heard of, looking to sort of see how they can target that market and to be honest you know it's a huge volume of cash knocking around isn't it there's what is it about 500 billion pounds in dc pots you know all of which technically could shift obviously you've got the guarantees you know charges considerations but any of that could move and so i think whoever owns that digital high street it's almost like going back to 2000 2001 you know the dot com early days of who's going to own the customer and obviously the people who own the the digital customer are like Google, Amazon, people like that, Facebook, and they are obviously some of the biggest companies in the world now. And I think it is going to be whoever's good at that will scoop up some of it, some of what's going on. Not everybody will, obviously, um, and you'll get the advisors at the top end, take, you know, cherry picking, as they say, the very biggest schemes out of workplace, for example. But you've got all of these, there's more... The, the rate, we did some research onto what's going on in decumulation across all of the mass trusts and GPPs in the market. We looked at about 22 providers. And there's, you know, for quite a few of them now, the, the rate of increase of small pots is about 11, 12% a year. So it's double this, the rate of increase of 
sorry, of deferred pots uh, is growing at a far faster rate than, than the master trusts are growing new customers. So it's definitely going to be an issue. Possibly we're going to end up with something, a move towards the Australian style of things. I did a thing with Link Group the other day and the guys there were talking about the new move in Australia where the default now is if, you, if you're with provider A that you've signed up to, say you were with Nest, for example, in your first job and then you go to your second job, the default now will be that the new employer will pay your contributions into Nest or say you've got Peoples as the, the second employer's scheme. So the default is it'll go into your existing provider and if you choose, you can go into the new provider, the uh, employer's home scheme. So maybe we'll get something like that. I don't know. That does seem to feel like it keeps the pressure on providers who are active in the market to be good. But yeah, I think it. I do think it feels like a big bang. It's really interesting. I remember John Lawson, who at the time was at Standard Life, and I went in to talk to Steve Webb back. So it must have been around you know, 2013, 2014, something like that, when mm. when the DWP sort of woke up to the fact that small pots might be a problem. It might even have been earlier than that. We were trying to persuade him to do exactly that, to move to a model where if you had a pension already, you could just, and you rolled into a new job, you could just keep your existing pension and your new new employer would just make a contribution to your existing pension. And it's only if you didn't have that or didn't ask for that, would you then get auto-enrolled into your new employer's pension. And that seemed to us like a really good way just to, to cap off the proliferation of all these dormant pots of money. But the, the auto-enrollment juggernaut was already kind of leaving the, leaving the station by then. And it was, it was just you know, too late for, for anyone to really kind of be that interested in changing direction on it. Um, but I, st- I still I stand by it. I still think that was a better solution. And I'm really interested to hear that Australia has now gone down that road with a, a way to just kind of put ownership of the pension pot back in the hand of the individual a bit more, doesn't it? It does. And um, I mean, there's conflicting views on, on the extent to which that's a good thing. I, my main focus is the workplace and... You know, you do get a level of oversight, and it's the it's the old conundrum of, you know, on the one hand, um, David Blake will say choosers are losers, that you know, individuals making their own decisions aren't going to make as good decisions as, you know, well paid, experienced investment committees of either trustees or IGCs. Flip side of that is obviously the big problem with auto enrolment, which is key focus for my publication. You know, the workplace pension schemes is. Uh, all of this lack of engagement all the way through and then to expect people to get engaged at the last minute or even not in just at the last minute, five years before where they've got to decide what their target sort of glide path landing point is, you're creating an uphill struggle there. So my sense is something that does engage people with their pots probably is going to be the thing that's that, that we need. That said, there's plenty of research and experts will tell you you can try all you like. You're not going to succeed in actually engaging most people in their pension. They want it done for them. Yeah, agree with that, which is what auto-enrollment you know, was the answer and has been so successful. Of course, the problem with that is, when, as you've pointed out, when you hit the, the decumulation point, um, you kind of need to make some decisions. We might come back to that in the conversation. Yeah. I just want, Before we go on, I just wanted to pick up on something you said earlier on about people coming to you asking for the data. So what kind of organizations are we talking about here and how do you think they're going to use that performance data? I mean, are we going? So the data we collect is we collect all the mass trust and GPP performance figures and risk figures. I think most of them probably at this stage, they're not so much after, after the actual performance figures. Some of them will do. And I think people will create legal ta- leak tables. And I know Guy Upperman, once that's happened, we're already doing that, showing who's done best, who's done worse. And we've got a thing called the Corporate Advisor Pension Average, which is the average of pretty much every multi-employer, GPP and Master Trust at three different stages in the savings journey at 30 years, five years and one day before state pension age and what their performance has been. I think they're more after knowing who the providers are, actually, and wanting to know that they've got the whole market covered off and want to know the scale of the opportunity, the people they need to be talking to. I mean, some of them have been literally tiny fintech startups that seem to be linked to accountancy. You know, when you go and look at these things, you never quite know who is in the background. So some have got accounting software links, a bit of payroll. Some, you know, we get some American analysts will get in touch asset managers from the US as well, so, uh, consultancies in the US. Are these people, sorry, I'm just to be clear, are these, do you think these are organisations that are trying to pick off whole schemes or are they trying to pick off individual members within schemes? I think the latter. I think, I think, yeah, I think that they're, they're, they're more interested in thinking, well, yeah, who's going to be the next pension B? 
who's going to you know go and do that job really well of uh, making it easy and in a sense of for who's going to own that i mean the example i always cite is if you think of like the the early days of first direct you know not everybody's got first direct telephone banking and you know obviously now online banking but but it's still got you still speak to people who say yeah i'm still with first direct you know 20 years later they were brilliant there and they're still brilliant i've, I've stuck with them They've probably done very well to maximise and monetize that that portion of the market that they've got. So I'm not sure there's a single person's going to get everything and it's going to conquer everybody. There will be little pockets. Some people might, you know, maybe you might have a, one of the big EBC apps is particularly successful with people. I mean, people like once people like an app and stick with it, they, they you know they tend to stay with it. So it might there might be multiple different options there it might be then that you stick with that app that you like for a few years and then they obviously get sold and bought bought by somebody else bigger so the consolidation may happen at stage two a bit like with the auto enrollment play that a lot of people made setting up auto enrollment providers mass trusts and you know schemes and then a lot of those have been sold on to bigger providers yeah yeah and we ended up with what was it? it's a 70 plus master trust which is clearly a bit too many and now they're consolidating down so linked to all of that we've had moves to broaden scheme investment choice so partly it's about bringing in liquid assets but also an interesting title of that was a question mark around the charges the schemes can levy on the members and creating greater accommodation around all of that and i suspect we'll hear more about that in 2023 and then tied to that was the, the work that dwp has been doing on value for money and I think the two kind of overlap a bit. So I'm interested in your thoughts around kind of those yeah. two initiatives. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't fully get to the bottom of it. And maybe you can fill me in. But I remember seeing it, but it was about two weeks ago, the liquid stuff came out. And then on the national press, people were really complaining. And a friend of mine complained down the pub to me saying, oh, I don't want I don't want my pension provider charging me a load of money for, for some illiquid investments. And I was going, well... Not even if they give you a better risk-adjusted return through thick and thin. So I'm pretty positive on illiquids. I think my readership, which is the pension consultants who represent, who represent probably 20 million DC investors in the UK, they too are all pretty positive about it. If you look at providers who succeed in our awards process, those that have got illiquids, are seem to be doing progressive things. Nest is praised for its approach to liquids. And it's early days. And I think there's there's an inevitable suspicion there. And I, I sort of understand the suspicion that, you know, as soon as you say you want to charge more, um, then, you know, people think, well, obviously you, you're trying to rip me off, you know, the you know, low charges. That whole low charges debate, I think we've been in a bit of a false world for the last since 2009-10 when with all of the you know quantitative easing we've been printing money and equity returns have been like on average nine ten percent a year until about a year ago so actually liquids might not have done as well as the cheapest chips cheapest equity tracker that you could get and that is true whether that's going to be the same going forward however is is a different uh, different kettle of fish and i think the thing i look at here is if I think about DB schemes, and it's very hard, and I'd, be, I'd love to know whether you've got any angle on this, is, is who's got, you know, what is the performance of DB schemes for when they're going for growth? Because my sense is because they're unfettered with, with regard to charges, and like I know the Canadian schemes, they do a lot of illiquid assets. They, um, my sense is, and anecdotally people tell me this, although I haven't seen the hard numbers, is that they do, they perform better than DC. So ultimately, as a, as a community representing, as I say, 20, 30 million people, we should be trying to get the very best asset allocation mix that we can, regardless of the focus on charges. But then it's just proving it, isn't it? It's yeah, the yeah. tricky I, bit. I, I, so uh, there will be some people cock it up, but then there'll be some people who do it very well. Yeah, and uh, we've had recent evidence of DB Scheme's ability to cock up their investment strategies, haven't we? With yeah, them. absolutely. I, 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 I can't answer your question because it's not something I'm sufficiently close to on the DB investment strategy stuff. I mean, a lot of their asset allocation has moved to, to de-risking and to matching against liabilities and much more heavily invested in gilts now than they yeah. were 10 or 20 years ago. But with the risk-seeking portion of their portfolios. I don't know. I guess if you can afford to take a 20, 30-year investment horizon view, which I'm guessing quite often is not the case with DC schemes, 
possibly, yeah, you can. In, in theory, you should be able to deliver better returns. But I sense mm. neither of us is really <laughs> really knows what we're talking about here, so we should probably yeah. move on. Um, I mean, the other the other bit of that equation was the value for money stuff. We're still waiting for this consultation paper to come out from the DWP, looking at net returns and and you know and charges, but also member engagement and that kind of rounded picture, not just about lowest price and any cost, but the overall value for money delivered within the schemes. And that was due to come out, I think, at the beginning of November. And then we've had a bit of a ministerial merry-go-round. We may yet see it this year. Maybe even by the time someone listens to the podcast, it will have been published. But that feels to me like quite an important piece of work as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's yeah, it's very timely that that, that, that happens. And, and within that, I mean, you talked about engagement and, yeah, your former uh, alma mater, uh, Hargreaves, are famous in their you know ability to engage with people. They do have a particularly wealthy, investment-savvy audience that they talk of customers but um, they do achieve high levels of engagement and i think these metric the metrics that they're going to need to try and develop maybe it's something around member logins uh statements of um death benefit beneficiaries increases in contributions things like that and these are all things that ultimately are beneficial i mean at, at the very extreme reductio ad absurdum level of the argument if you go back to the the man from the pro taking maybe you know, well, or other providers are available, but taking, I don't know, maybe half of your contributions back in the 1950s from your Saturday fund went on the, the sales guy. But the reality was when you got to whatever age you needed the money, there was a chunk of money there that, money there, that you yeah. wouldn't have had. Yeah. So, so that sort of downside of the retail distribution review hasn't been fully addressed yet. So I think something that taps into that that engagement level and, and in terms of outcomes and understanding what people are doing at retirement is really, really important. But also to come back to that point, my sense is that, well, there's two things going on with the illiquids in particular, but um, I think my understanding is with the VFM consultation, they want to cover off, they're, they're looking at doing um, forward-looking performance metrics. And I think the idea behind that, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the idea of that is that, well, for one, it must be terribly hard, but that looking at the assets that you've got and what their performance attributes from what we know stochastically, obviously everything's being looked at through the rear view mirror of history. But if you can, to sort of show that like portfolio A, which is spending maybe eight, 10 basis points on assets in the default would probably lead to these stochastic outcomes. Portfolio B, which is maybe spending 2025, which might have illiquids, things like that in, should, in theory, make more money. But obviously, this is forward, this is forward future sort of crystal ball stuff. So it is very tricky. But um, I think the government are trying to encourage people to sort of have some skin in the game with regard to making sure the investments are as good as possible because there is a risk that once you've got your customers you can put them in the skinniest cheapest track as possible hope for it and because actually if your if your charge is based on your overall wrapped up bundled cost then um, it's in your interest to have the cheapest as a provider it's in your interest to have the cheapest asset allocation possible. Yeah, and I know that the DWP was getting conflicting advice on this aspect of the consultation paper. So I'll be interested to see what does emerge on that one. Yeah. And then the other thing to fair to say there is is that actually there's this issue around domestic assets, isn't there? And I know George Osborne was keen on getting the LGPS yeah. to invest in illiquids and and I think the other driver is to the i.e. to get in invest in UK infrastructure. Yeah. And even if you think and I think the prize isn't perhaps as big as maybe ministers hope with um, DC pensions. If you've got 500 billion at the moment, and let's say you were going to do 10% of that into illiquids, so 5 billion pounds of that, someone said to me that's only 7% of investable infrastructure is in the UK. So if you're not going to have a home bias, which I don't think trustees are particularly keen on, you're going to end up with quite a small amount actually in UK infrastructure yeah and you've got to find that bit of the venn diagram where it overlaps with their fiduciary duty to to deliver a good investment return for their members they can't be pursuing investment strategies just because it's convenient for a government minister that wants to stimulate domestic economic growth right so there's there's a tension there we heard a lot this year about esg and sustainability and we've had the fca's paper on sustainability disclosure requirements all 170 odd pages of that one coming off the back of the task force on climate related financial disclosures 
We've had the task force on pension scheme voting implementation, and it feels like there's quite a lot going on around, in the broader sense, around ESG and and from a, from from the various regulatory bodies, the FCA, DWP, pushing that agenda. And I guess we're going to hear more of that going into next year as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, I think like workplace pensions in particular have been doing a hell of a lot on sustainability and net zero. We did a report last year. We do, we've been doing an ESG DC pensions report every year. Last year, we got to the point where we've now nailed the fact that every single workplace pension provider has got a 2050 or sooner 100% carbon reduction, i.e. net zero target, and every one of them's got 2030 or sooner for a 50% reduction. That sort of latter pledge is it's quite significant really isn't it it's seven years away and you're going to be well you're going to be 50 percent out of carbon seven years from now given given the current dependency yeah. of the global economy on on fossil fuel energy that's quite a big ask it is a big ask and, and i struggle with how you you do align that pledge with also the fiduciary duty to maximize returns and i do get the point that you've got to have a world to retire into and I'm wholeheartedly behind the goals and the importance of the entire financial services system and the, the entire economy switching to this situation. But if we get to a point in 2030 where you know all workplace pension schemes have reduced their carbon exposure by 50%, but maybe those with the seeing individual, you know, independent financial advisors haven't done, then and if there's a dif- differential between those two groups in terms of return and, and the um, the workplace ones have done worse, then I think there'll be some questions to be answered, to be honest. And also at the same time, if we get to the point where there's been a 20, by 2030, there's been a 50% reduction in carbon, but there's not been any noticeable reduction in particles of CO2 per million in the atmosphere. Which, and I don't claim to be a climate expert, but I don't think there will be. I think even if we no. stop burning this stuff today, it's going to take a while. You know, yeah. uh, so that could get kind of awkward for policymakers, I guess. In fact, I, I had a conversation with uh, Pablo Antolin, you know, of the OECD. Him and his team were over from Paris last week, and I put a proposition to him. If you've got two schemes, one with a hard 2030 pledge that it is going to meet, i.e. of decarbonising by 50% by 2030, and one that doesn't have that pledge and of stochastically in multiple out- outcomes which one is likely to have the better one better returns and so you know he quite frankly said on the record yeah the latter so it is a challenge this is further complicated by uh, the vanguard decision to leave the net zero asset managers initiative and i'm curious as to what the ramifications of that are going to be because if if others are in it and their net zero pledges mean that they are, their indices are going to follow an, a net zero pathway. Are we going to see people going, I don't really believe in that. You know, I'm a big Jeremy Clarkson fan. I like my, you know, Lamborghini. I'm going to go for the Vanguard version. You know, it's like getting some people to be virtuous while not everybody else is, is, is a difficult thing to do. And it makes me think that actually it should be the government that is moving the goalposts so that there is no alternative but to follow the um, decarbonisation process. Flip side of that is, I mean, the reality is it could also all very quickly change. We know how things can change very quickly in markets. Things can come out of favour and it could be that stranded assets start to look really, you know, very, very stranded and, and unvaluable indeed, although we're not seeing that anytime soon. So so it's a difficult conundrum. Yeah, and we've seen pushback in the red states in America, and I think that might be part of what was driving Vanguard's decision. I, I mean, I don't know, but I'm guessing the fact that there's this kind of backlash against the ESG investing and this argument that the big asset managers like of BlackRock and Vanguard are wielding too much power and doing so inappropriately, and that has a detrimental impact on on the ground in some states that are still fossil fuel dependent. And that's become a reputational issue for some asset managers. It's become a lot more ambiguous than was the case even a year ago, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And we had Stuart Kirk of formerly of HSBC. His uh, interesting, to say the least, presentation at the FT conference um, several months back, uh, where he 
he gave a piece saying why uh, asset managers don't need to worry about climate change, basically saying it's all priced in and, and you'll find your own way there. Uh, we just done a very in-depth piece of research in partnership with the DC Investment Forum where we interviewed like the nine biggest investment consultants to pension schemes. And we spoke to their sustainability heads. And uh, it was an interesting set of views that they, they, one of the things that they basically said was that carbon pledges, actually the amount of data that we have to wrap around these pledges is so flimsy at the moment that it's actually hard hard to say anything meaningful because uh, we simply don't know, you know, we can't say with any accuracy. It's a bit like Project Fear, you know, the fall in the UK house prices following Brexit, George Osborne gave a pound shillings and pence value of it. And I think part of the government's idea is that, you know, you'll see the pension scheme today has got a um, tonnes per million pounds of investment weighting of X versus one that's Y, and the, the market will find its way to the lower carbon ones, but it's a lot more nuanced than that at the moment. And the, the lack of data around it all is going to make it all very, very complicated. But but it's still a significant marketing advantage for people to have a green badge, claim their green credentials, and, uh, and therefore... And I suppose my fear is that with all of this almost bubble of green claims, that when they then prove not to be true, there'll be an undermining of faith in the entire system. If and trust in trust in pensions is really important. And if, if for example, if pledges are slip or if they if the numbers are shown to be inaccurate, then um, that's not going to be good for the pension industry as a whole. Yeah, and it's interesting when you read the FCA's SDR paper, there were repeated references to greenwashing and their concerns around the reputational impact on the investment industry if there are perceptions that that they're making misleading claims towards consumers so so i think you're absolutely right about that Uh, and another point on that actually is um we asked the asset managers of the dc pensions universe what they sign up to in terms of you know nzaamg fans all these acronyms the alphabet super all of these acronyms and we got something like 240 different acronyms that you can sign up to so the robustness of these is really, really hard. It's like trying to nail jelly to the wall, trying to say, well, yeah, there's one uniform badge of green value. And obviously that's what the FCA and the EU, to be fair, are trying to pin down. Yeah, and I think, I think they're making good progress in that regard, but I know what you yeah. mean. Yes, it doesn't make it easy. So a couple of other things to pick up on from 2022. And, yeah. And I haven't forgotten about the decumulation thing. I want to pick that up as part of 2023. I think forward as well, but just couple of things. We have the consumer duty and the advice guidance boundary holistic review from the FCA, both landed towards the end of 2022, but I think are going to cause quite a lot of work going into 2023. So again, in- interesting thoughts around those two little initiatives from, from the regulator. Yeah, consumer duty could be really, it could be like, you've got to go back into your book a bit like, was it the Competition Commission? investigation a few years back go back into your book and find out where you're how you're treating customers whether you're spreading you know whether you're having sort of new joiner deals it could be that some people are going to go and revisit their charging structures arguably so it will be interesting to see the extent to which like you can get all excited about these things and think oh it's going to turn the world upside down and then the implementation is something less forceful than on first reading of, of the consultations and of the rules but i yeah i think it could be a bit of a shake-up hopefully i mean there, there are still people talk to me all you know advisors talk to me all the time about coming across schemes with pretty high charges so it should shake some of those out and, and lead to some better better outcomes for members on the advice boundary as i say my my primary focus is on workplace pensions and employers are absolutely terrified about saying anything to anybody and the reality is right now there's lots of bad outcomes at retirement. I mean, I know we're going to come to decumulation options later, but this is where the advice slash guidance barrier really, really does matter. The line that some some consult says, you know, you can lose a you can lose a decade's worth of contributions in a single day by making the wrong decision at retirement, and people are doing that. We just did another report on retirement outcomes, and we went and asked everybody. All of the master trusts, what people do at retirement, and actually this is something the FCA, sorry, the, the TPR don't actually collect currently, but we went and asked and, you know, we said, what percentage of your retirees go into annuity drawdown mm-hmm. or take it all as cash? 
And there are three providers where 100% of people take it all as cash. 100% of people take 100% of the pots as cash. So even if, and a lot of these are small pots, to be fair. So I get that, you know, these are auto, a lot of these are auto-enrollment pots. Some of them can be five grand, 15 to 10 grand or whatever. But even if you've got 10 grand and you've got, and you're on 45,000 quid, if you've taken... £10,000 in one go, then five grand of that is going to be charged at a higher rate of tax than it need have been if you'd spread that over two years. Was it your only point? Because, but that comes back to the consolidate. Maybe if they'd rolled out 10 grand into the other 50 grand you had somewhere else, it would have looked like a more meaningful source of income in retirement. Yeah, exactly. So I think there is a yawning gap of knowledge amongst the people of the UK who are in DC. They've got this massive risk placed on their shoulders. And it's not just the investment risk, it's the advice risk, the tax risk, the product risk, all of those risks that they're they're now carrying. And they sort of need a nudge. But the flip side of that is is that as soon as you start personalising things, you do get into sort of financial ombudsman service territory. And there's talk about this sort of personalised guidance sort of halfway out to be able to say some more useful things. And I think in principle, it sounds like the right thing to do, given the reality of where we are. I know you could argue that um, investment pathways is an attempt to force people to make a decision along those lines. And actually by presenting them with four options, they've forced them into a bit of choice architecture that could in a sense be described as, well, not advice, but, you know, forcing them to make some more informed choice than they had done before, which while not perfect is is better than not doing anything at all. I think you're still going to have financial ombudsman in the background. And so if providers think that they can do something or advisors think that consultants think they can do something while remaining on the right side of financial ombudsman service, then good luck and go for it. But I think You've got to have some comeback in the event that it's all wrong or it's all funneling people towards, you know, oh, actually, you know, you, what you really want is we're going to guide you towards our annuity that, you know, might not be the best thing for them, to be honest. So there's caution needed and it comes back to the, I mean, yeah, the, the sort of digital slash bionic advice solutions, hopefully with the open banking and open finance, we can get down the line to where there is more an ability to give people something digitally enhanced at least with a bit of personal input and and affordable so i've sort of sat on the fence there because it's a very difficult fence to uh... isn't it um, and you get splinters i mean the, the investment strategy piece is one thing i always felt like the investment pathway thing was not entirely useless but not much use given that the really problematic decision is around your income withdrawal strategy so it's not about the investment yeah. choices it's about how and how much you draw your income. And that, to me, you know, is a more weighty decision to make than simply do I go for investment choice A or B or C or D. And that's the bit that was never filled in by the FCA. And that brings yeah. us on to what the DWP looked at earlier this year, on which we should hear a lot more next year, which is around this question of the decumulation within occupational pension schemes. And I know Guy was not impressed with the work the FCA had done post-pension freedoms in this space, and he felt that there was more that needed to be done. We're under new management now at the DWP, so I'm not sure what will come out of that. But it does feel like there's still a lot of unfinished business around this question of how we help people with this transition from accumulation to decumulation. Interesting your thoughts on what we might see coming next Yeah, well, I, I think a lot of talk about unfit, I'd say it's probably the biggest challenge facing the DC pensions industry is the decumulation pathways or call them what you will journeys experiences that people are having and yeah at the moment that's probably where there's more bad outcomes happening right now on a daily basis than than anywhere else and it's almost like you know if you look at reality on the ground I mean the stat I just said about three providers where everybody's taking everything as cash it just shows that it's it's actually right now nobody's really on top of it and in a sense, you could say that the FCA at least is doing investment pathways, but in the occupational world, uh, it's very limited. Well, it is, it's very hard to know what, what's going on, really. And my suspicion is in a lot of cases, not a lot is actually happening. At least for the FCA regulated providers, they have the functionality to do partial off plus or, or you know, yeah. partial flexi access drawdown. Not all providers in the trust-based world do have that flexibility or you know functionality so the functionality is not even there yet 
So we've got a long, long way to, to go there. In terms of, uh, I think you're right, the uh, the one thing that you want to know if you're in drawdown is what's a safe withdrawal rate. And there are people starting to do that for you. I think LifeSite are saying, yeah, we'll tell you that we think this is a sustainable rate. If you take more, then you, they don't use the phrase risk of ruin, but your run out point is more likely to be at this age. If you take this, we think this is sustainable for now, but it might that might change. So there's obviously a whole load of education that has to go hand in hand with the, with drawdown. But then the reality is people are taking out more than the three or four, four and a half percent that, that might be sensible anyway. So so maybe actually the number of people who say, I want to know exactly how much to take out of my pot every month so it lasts through my life isn't as great as, you know, maybe there's more people saying, I know I'm going to run out at a certain point. And as long as I'm told all of the options, that's that. Well, that's going to be enough. You can do that in a non-advised way by saying these are the stochastic facts as we see them today. They'll change. Keep notifying people of the changes, and then they'll probably take a lot of them. Will take more than you've told them they can do anyway, and and you can't stop them from doing that. And they might have good reasons for doing that. They might not, but that's not something you, you're going to get to the bottom of without proper financial advice. Yeah, my sense is that 2023 is going to be the year when focus on decumulation really notches up a gear. We've already seen it towards the second half of this year. We're seeing collected DC gain some traction, gain a lot more traction, I would say. And it depends how you define it. We had an event in um, the beginning of November and we had John Ralph uh, versus Simon Eagle of Liz Towers Watson, and the brief was very limited. And I, I deliberately did this on purpose because there's a tendency when you talk about CDC, it's very easy to go, oh, well, I don't like Royal Mail. I think Royal Mail is unfair to younger savers because older savers get a better deal, younger savers get a worse deal. It's intergenerationally unfair. And so the way we set it up was say somebody's got a hundred thousand quid pot they've got state pension and that's all they've got they've realized that they don't need to give any money to their children they need this pot to see them through their life as long as possible so the the decumulation only cdc advocates will say you can do that and get more money than an annuity and you can do it and get less risk than drawdown and get more money than drawdown actually because obviously you've got the mortality cross subsidy you've got the fact that you don't need to know when you're going to die so you don't have to hold any money back so you do get up to eat up all of your pot effectively you can use your principal sum as well as your interest effectively in simple terms and that is one of the attractions of collected dc there's different versions knocking around i know willis has watson's looking at something along those lines that pulls the longevity risk but doesn't pull the investment risk i think that's the version and nothing's nailed down that that yeah that's the other thing and, and i think what what we need for this is it needs another name because as soon as you call it cdc people go oh yeah well i don't like royal mail and it's like well okay we've got to go through that bit of the debate we need to get onto whatever this project x is which is DC for decumulation only people. My sense that it is that it can give you a bigger return and also that people are actually looking at it, give you a bigger return than drawdown. Remember, what is it? The Institute of Actuaries put, I think they've got a 3.5% safe withdrawal rate from drawdown to make sure you don't need, that you don't run out of money. That's, that's not amazing. Flip side of that is since the last lot of numbers that I saw about how, um, CDC compares with annuity. That was done about a year ago when annuity rates weren't where they are now. So that's another twist in the in the story is that obviously annuity rates are significantly better than they are now. So how well are how, how well is the CDC going to do against that? And I think with all of these things, we, we just need to see actual numbers. So what it's going to take is for some someone with a lot of stochastic modelling actual numbers come and show us what these products can do but i think it's probably the question of the age i think it's the biggest most important question out there in real terms as to what people actually get in their retirement flip side of that is aviva's come out with an idea which is sort of a bit like the flex then fix so their their idea is you have three pots you've got 10 percent daily spending sort of emergency spending pot 20 percent goes into a later life annuity. It's a debate over whether you buy that at 65 or at 80, but ensures your tail end risk. And then you run your other 70% down through drawdown 
between the age of 65 and 80. And um, that's also received quite a lot of positive engagement from the consultants who um, who we speak to. So, so that feels like a, another solution. It's probably simpler to, to explain to people, which is going to be important. And so, you know, that's a potential runner. But uh, again, we haven't seen the exact numbers yet. Really interesting. And um, we had Simon Eagle very kindly did a, did a podcast with me a few weeks ago. If anyone's listening to this, if you're interested, you can go back and find that, that, that episode with Simon and hear more about his thoughts on CDC. Actually, we also had John Ralph on a while ago, but that was on the university pension scheme where he was, of course, troubling the way that John does. But he was very good at that. Yeah. It feels like we need a decumulation strategy, Hunger Games, kind of a yardstick with all of this. And I think you chose really well with the scenario you described. Like, it's fine if you've got a million, if you're at lifetime allowance, you've got a million pounds in your pension pot, go and see an advisor. They'll tell you what to do. That's fine. If you've got 10 grand in your pot, you are probably just going to take it as cash. It's the people with 100, 200, maybe even 300,000 who need a really kind of quite simple and I'd argue that it's quite hard to deliver a fire and forget solution entirely so I'll just mm. end up at 65 and then I'm good for the rest of my life which is kind of what it sounds like Aviva were working on but there are these various different models that some I mean something you were describing sounded a bit like an investment investment backed annuity so that's kind of and if you go into a product solution as opposed to what Simon was working on which is a a trust-based solution mm. for the CDC stuff. We need to get to a point where there is a simple, robust solution that, yeah, uses a bit of the mortality cross-subsidy to... I mean, Simon talked about being able to deliver a 50% higher return than an annuity, which mm. I thought was, was kind of interesting because that's, that's, not, that's not nothing. That's quite no. a big number. But I also find it interesting that here we are in 2020, nearly 2023, after George Osborne's announcement in March 2014, and we're still trying to work out what good looks like with all this kind of stuff. So I agree with you. Big question for next year. And I think it just shows how hard how hard the question is. People have basically steered away from it. It's also because the DC pots haven't been that big yet, but I think people are starting to realise that they are. So could I ask you then what you think of the uh, CDC model as described by Simon? I'm very sympathetic to it. I think that idea of pooled assets, of sharing an element of mortality cross-subsidy. And as an aside, I really don't like where we've ended up with the death benefit, the tax treatment of death benefits on pensions and the way it facilitates passing large sums of money out of the pension system, largely IHT-free into the, well, technically entirely IHT-free, but also income tax free into the hands of beneficiaries. You know, I'm, I'm all in favour of private enterprise and accumulating wealth and providing for your family. I don't like the way that's currently done through the pension system. So one, I would change the death benefit rules to make it less attractive to hoard money within pensions into late life. And then two, I think that model of something close to what Simon described of a collective defined contribution scheme where you, you share the, the mortality cross-subsidy to enhance the returns for a living, to me, it absolutely makes sense and provides a good mass market solution potentially. Yeah, I agree. I don't think death benefits are, I don't think that was the policy intent when they set up the pension system was to enable people to pass, you know, spend all their ISAs and other cash and then leave everything in the pension for their kids. Yeah. I'm conscious of time. There's a couple of things I wanted to just touch on. We didn't hear anything this year, or very little on pension tax reform. The industry, including myself, kept saying, oh, I wonder if there's any pension tax reform, and there never was. But what we've got is just the, the, the steady erosion through fiscal drag of the, the benefits of the pension system. And maybe that's all we're going to get to see going forward into, into next year. It's Ricky Sunak and Jeremy Hunt will just keep quietly allowing inflation to eat away at the tax privilege pension system. But I wonder if you have any thoughts around all of that. Yeah, I, I think, for one, there's not the political will to do it and the political capital to do it, to be honest, as well. And, and if you're going to start tinkering with DB, You've got a general strike on your hands, and that's just not going to happen anytime soon. Whether you do it for DC, again, DC is already the poor relation to DB in terms of you know allowances. People seem to allow that to happen. Uh, that unfairness seems to go untrammeled. Obviously, public sector don't mind that, and there are a lot of people making the decisions. So yeah, I I don't see it anytime soon, and it, I think it's in the too hard box. We won't see it any time for a, for a good while. You need a lot of political capital for that kind of thing, don't you? Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I agree. But you, I just wanted to finish off, and there's a lot more we could talk about around the wider pension system, but let's save that for another day. I did want to pick yeah. up on something you spoke to me about last time we met, which is around early access to pensions and and the idea of some kind of metric around financial well-being and resilience. And, and just talk to me a bit about those two thoughts. Yeah, so, I mean, the idea of early access for pensions has been knocked around for a while, and I, I was cool on it when it first came up early doors. But I'm increasingly coming around to the idea, not least because I've just done a 10-year piece on the 10 years of auto-enrolment. And it, within that, I interviewed, along with a lot of, a lot of other sort of dignitaries and people doing it at the time, Lord Turner. And what I was reminded of was how much focus and concern at the time of the, the whole package of reforms there was around the means test from pension credit mm. and that fear that the government had that they were going to be mis-selling people pensions. Because remember, they put people into financial services products that taking money out of their wallet without a wet signature, without actually them possibly knowing in some cases. So there was a risk to them. So they thought, right, we better sort out and flatten the state pension as a result to, because of that fear. So as roll forward right now, and this struck to me, so it's a friend of mine who, who's on low income, she's in a difficult situation and she's got three children. Her rent, she needs to move house, her rent would be £1,200 a month. It, not in London, this is in a not particularly wealthy town, sort of 100 miles from London. And she can never afford that. Well, she can and she will have to afford that, but she'll probably have to work three days of a week just to pay £14,000 a year rent. So people, if you're renting and you're in your 40s and 50s, you may as well not have a pension unless you're wealthy because you're going to be on benefits in retirement. Nobody's going to have 14, 12 grand a year to pay rent, you know, we're talking £300,000 pot just to pay your rent before you've actually bought a tin of baked beans. So for those people, that same means testing thing is there. You're going to be you're going to be on housing benefit. You're going to be on benefits through retirement. The problem they have, it, and this same friend, I could buy, because I have access to capital, I could buy that same place that's going to cost her 12, 14 grand a year and interest only pay. It's a bit more now than it was a year or two ago, but I can still for sort of seven grand buy that place and charge her 14 grand for it so people with capital can get property people without capital are on this hamster wheel of rent and and they can't get off it so if you were to have access to say you'd built up fifteen thousand pounds by the age of 40 in your auto enrollment pop and that's what you've been nudged into and then you were to access that for a deposit. And maybe you could set it up so that it, you, you, if you accept it, then you agree that maybe you're going to pay a little bit more into your pension on the way going forward. Or even, I don't know, you, you'd just be a wealthier person going forward because you'd have gained some capital. Then your whole life journey would be a better one. So in this, rather than another, some people sometimes say we need another pension review, another Turner review. I don't think we'd need that. I think what we need is a, a sort of financial wellbeing and resilience review. So at the moment, we have successfully set something up that will, as long as you turn up for work for four years, you'll end up with a part of a certain size and that'll give you something towards your living expenses. What we haven't done is helps you with other parts of your life. And that journey that we've set you up with, if you're going to be renting in retirement, is actually relatively pointless. So with so much talk about financial well-being in the, across the financial services system, everybody's wanting to help with financial well-being, which is great and it's really important. And there is, particularly in the next year or two, going to be even more of a financial well-being crisis than there has been with all of the knock-on effects to people's life experiences and their health and the functionality of the of the economy. We we did a thing on uh, the psychology of well-being and, and there was an event at an event we had the other day. Somebody came out with a statistic that if you enter a scarcity mindset where you can't pay your bills, you can lead to something like was it an eleven point reduction in your in your IQ uh, because you stop thinking clearly because you're in a constant state of panic. And there's other stats that show people who are in financial stress spend a lot of time at work during the work time trying to figure out their finances, panicking and just not being as effective, mm -hmm. and let, let alone what it's doing to their health and their family life. And tragic cases 
ending up in suicide. So I think with auto-enrolment, the great thing about the nudges of auto-enrolment and, and then these decumulation pathways that we've talked about there and fixing a safe withdrawal rate, and it's all done to you at an institutional level. We've done a great job there of creating a journey for people for one thing, which is their retirement. You know, if I, if I was a policymaker of any of the big parties, I'd be saying, you know what, we'll, we'll do a review and we'll figure out all of the tax a holistic review of all of the tax breaks and all of the incentives and all the things that we're trying to do, tie it all together and create pathways that can give you a way of getting to a fulfilling life where you do get a home during your life and then you also have a, a safe retirement. So on that basis, that's why I'd sort of, I would suggest that early access would be an early way of doing that for those renters because it would just lead to uh, obviously them having some actual something of, of value in retirement, even if it was their home and a smaller pension pot, they'd even be better off then than if they didn't. And, and I suppose the kickback from the government might be, well, yeah, but it might push up the cost of pension credit. I don't think it actually would. I think that's their first reaction might be that, but I, I don't think it would because they'd actually have more money to be able to save more as they went through the rest of their life. So, Well, you could yeah, do the modelling and I think, I mean, this is... It's into Michael Johnson territory here, aren't we? This is what the life yeah, of my yeah. was supposed to do, wasn't it? Was to to give yeah. people that optionality. And I think, you know, given where we're currently heading in terms of home ownership rates in this country and the way it's just dropping off a cliff as you go down through the generations, you know, anything that could reverse that would be, I think, politically pr- pretty powerful stuff. So interesting. Uh, okay, well, maybe maybe we'll we should look out for that next year, but. Uh, that sounds like pretty big stuff you're talking about there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, this is just me thinking about this, um, reflecting on my years of reflecting on pensions. And uh, yeah, some pension providers might not like it. They might get more in the long run. I don't know. I think I think a lot of a lot of providers now would just sign up to you know and, uh, improved financial well-being across the country. You know, I think I think there mm. is a, a greater willingness to play the long game on some of this stuff. Perhaps might yeah, exactly. It's certainly not working at the moment. Good stuff. John, thanks very much for talking to me. Really enjoyed it. No, it's been my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.